Good morning again. Good to be back, be able to do this. Um, our, um, our study today will be in 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, we're continuing on with our study every time I get the opportunity to preach. We're going to be going through this book um, chapter by verse and, and uh, just m- uh, methodically looking at the Word of God. So for the sake of those who may not have uh, joined us the last time or because it has been a little bit of time, I'd like to do a little bit of a catch-up here uh, in this book and just to see where we're at right now. Uh, so far in our journey through First Peter, we see the encouraging but challenging words of the Apostle Peter to a group of exiles, both Jews and Gentiles, dispersed throughout Asia Minor, immersed in pagan lands away from their families uh, and, and their familiar surroundings and their own cultures, fleeing intense persecution from the Emperor Nero. They faced many difficulties in their unfamiliar surroundings, all the while struggling to keep hold of their faith and not be influenced by the pagan culture that, of these unfamiliar environments. Peter endeavored to encourage them by reminding them that they should not lose hope or their hope was imperishable and alive. And even though they would suffer, they would be vindicated when Christ returns. So I'd like to kind of like um, do a brief recap of of, uh, the first couple of chapters. It won't be very long, but uh, in chapter one, we saw that... uh, that they and we are born again to a living hope. And in verse 3 through 5, is blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you by by God's power, are being guarded through him, through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And moving on in chapter 1, um, we see that he, Peter encouraged that, they, that we and they were, are called to be holy. In verse 15 of chapter 1, it says, But as... As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. In verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2, it says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. He's reorienting them back to the death and resurrection of Christ as the foundation or their faith. He goes on in, in the uh, chapter 1, uh, in verse 5, he says, you, uh, the, the heading there in, in your Bible may be that we are a living stone and a holy people. And in verse 5, he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And in verse 12 of chapter 2, he encourages them to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Which brings us now into chapter 2 where um, uh, Peter, Peter extols them and, and tells them about this idea of submission. And it says that we are we are to be in submission to authority, established to God's to to authority, our civil authority and the authority that, that we sit under, established by His will and for His purposes. And in verse uh, verse of chapter two, in verses thirteen through fifteen, it says, "Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution." whether it be to the emperor as supreme or the king or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. 
for this is the will of God. In verses 18 through 19 of of, uh, chapter 2, Peter reminded them, the servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. In verses 21 to 24, he goes on and says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Encouraging these believers that when they suffer, that their trust should be directed towards God. The one that, the only trust that they can truly rely on is that trust that they have in God. Verse 24 of chapter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This leads us to our text for today. In, in uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. And the title in your Bible may be um, Instructions to Husbands and Wives. Um, today, for the purposes of this uh, message, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6, which uh, is our instructions to the wives of the believing wives on their role in a marriage. Um, let's read through the script, the scripture right now. Uh, verse 1, chapter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit in which God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. When we finished up chapter 2, the last time I had the opportunity to share, um, I told you that this call to submission to authorities would hit a little bit closer to home. And that's exactly where this text uh, points to, the marriage relationship between the man and the woman. I understand this message isn't always an easy message to hear or an easy message to preach. This is the Word of God. This is something that we talked about the last time briefly. Today we'll look at the role of the woman. But in our next study, the men will be in the hot seat. So don't worry, ladies. We're going to cover the men's responsibilities next. And uh, even though I know it seems when you look at the text overall, verses 1 through 6 address the women's role, and only verse 7 in this particular portion of Scripture um, addresses the men's role. But believe me, there is a lot to that. Um, uh, It may seem a little out of balance here, but when we get into uh, the book of Ephesians chapter 5, which is where we'll spend some time when we get ready to look at the men's responsibility in the, in the marriage relationship, you'll see, you'll see the difference. You'll see that it's equally spread. So let's pray. Dear Lord, I, I just thank you for the opportunity to share your word today, Father. I just pray that as we dig into your word, Lord, that you will give clarity, Father, that your spirit will dwell with us, that our hearts would be open to what you have to say. And Father, give me clarity of mind and Help me to stay focused and to be able to rightly divide your word so that I don't misrepresent what is in your word, Lord, that this is your will for us and your ways, Lord. 
And I just pray that we're obedient and, and that, that we understand your word and hide it deeply in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, verse 1 and 2. Let's dig into this a little bit. The first word he uses, likewise. It says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And that word likewise there, um, it means it's not like a therefore. It's, it's more like, like uh, in that same way. And what, what Peter's referring to and what my understanding of this scripture is that Peter's referring back to what was stated in chapter 2 about um, submission to masters. And, and that, um, and I, th- I'm, I make that connection because I, I see that in that statement, um, Peter says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and to the gentle, but to the unjust. Which is kind of a connection to what he said in this verse. He says, be subject to your husbands, even if some do not obey the word. So you see the connection there? Um, it's, it's not really like we're obeying the government because there's no, there's no prerequisite attached to the government. They just ask us to be good citizens and to obey the government that we're under because God has brought that into our midst. And uh, it's there for his purpose. But overall, we're, we're called to be good citizens. So he says, likewise, wives be subject to your husbands. So in that same manner. Proper submission in the home follows the same principles of submission towards the government or our employers. It is submission not only uh, of the actions, but also of the heart. As demonstrated by the surrendering of the heart of Jesus that we saw in chapter 2 that we read earlier in verse, verses 21 through 24. We see the principle of submission demonstrated in several ways and examples in Scripture. I'm not going to read all these, but you know, if you're into taking notes, you might want to jot some of these down if you feel like it and go back and look at them later. I'll go through the list quickly for sake of time. Jesus submitted to his parents. Luke 2, uh, 51. Demons submitted to the disciples. Luke 10, verse 17. Citizens should submit to the government authority, Romans 13.1 and 5, and Titus 3.1. The universe will submit to Jesus, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 27, and Ephesians 1, verse 22. Unseen spiritual beings will submit to Jesus, 1 Peter 3.2, we'll, we'll, or 1 Peter 3, verse 22. We'll encounter that later in this in this study, not today. Christians should submit to their church leaders. We see that uh, brought forth in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 15 through 16, and 1 Peter 5 later on in this book. Wives should submit to their husbands. It isn't only, this is not the only place where uh, this command and this encouragement and this directive is given. There are other places. Paul spoke many times about this. Uh, The book of, I believe, Titus. um, The book of Colossians and Ephesians, which we will be getting into when we talk about the men. We'll see that a little bit further. The church should submit to Jesus, and that kind of goes without saying, right? We follow Christ. He is our center. He is our king. We bow to him, we follow him, we listen to his word, we do our very best within our human capability to follow his word. Servants should submit to their masters. And I want to clarify, as we spoke about in chapter 2, as we finished the last time we were here, this servant-master relationship is akin to employer-employee relationships today. So I just want to clarify that a little bit. You know, we, we do have a role that we play in our places of employment. And we do show that kind of respect. Um, going on. Christians should submit to God. That kind of goes without saying. We see that in Hebrews 12.9 and James 
4, verse 7. Uh, in verse in 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 this uh, first verse in that we're looking at today, it says, "To your own husbands, women are to submit to your own husbands." Nowhere in Scripture do we see that women are commanded to be in submission to men in general. Submission does not mean that one party uh, that one that one party being inferior to another. It just means that God has established a chain of command. And he has given each party certain responsibilities in that relationship. Wayne Grudem wrote, Thus, the command uh, to wives to be subject to their husbands should never be taken to imply an inferior personhood or spirituality or of lesser importance. That word submission is uh, used in the Old Testament outside of the New Testament that word, or be sub- subject to, is hupotasso. We spoke about it briefly, but I'll remind you about what that means. Hupotasso, this word was a Greek military term, meaning to arrange like troop divisions in a military fashion under the command of a leader. In non-military use, it was a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. So do you see the connection here? This word submit means that we just put ourselves in a role, in a, in a structure, in a, in a design that God has ordained for us. And it starts in the, in the home, in the marriage. And it's reflected in, a, in the church. So, so these are parallel um, things that, that need to be exercised in our life and carried over into our life in the church as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, it says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of, of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So do you see there how there there are, there is an order to this subjection that we have and we are obligated by the command of God to to recognize that and do our very best within our human capabilities to see to that. The principle of submission has been God's design for husbands and wives from the beginning. Prior to the fall, there there was perfect harmony uh, in their respective roles as God intended. They were fulfilling God's design willingly and lovingly in the purest possible sense. Let's take a brief look back at the book of Genesis and see how the situation changed after the fall. And God brought the curse into the union and upon his creation. This is where the tension comes. Prior to the curse, it was a perfect environment. This was, this was God's direction and it was willing cooperation today there's a bit of tension around this whole subject and that is as a result of the curse and i think as we look into genesis a little more closely hopefully we'll see that we'll try to go through this briefly i had i had um, brother nate read through genesis 1 so that we could see some parallels here. I didn't want to go through Genesis 2 as well because we're going to be covering both Genesis 1 and 2 briefly. Um, but for sake of time, I just had him read uh, Genesis chapter 1 or 2. Then God said, let us make man in our own... Genesis 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Um, in uh, Genesis 2.15, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. That word keep it is a Hebrew word. It's called shamar. And that means to keep or to guard, to watch over, to ward, to protect, to preserve and save life. That was the direction that, that Adam was given 
uh, in this garden and under his dominion, we see that God gave him dominion over this creation. Genesis 2.17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. This command was given only to Adam. Eve was not on, on the scene at this time. She had not been created. So Adam was the only one that this command had, be given, had been given to, and he was responsible and accountable for keeping it. Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. That word helper is azer. That's, that's the Hebrew word. And that is one who helps. An assistance or a support in times of hardship and distress. With Adam being at the head of this responsibility of caring for the garden, God recognized and saw that he would need a helper to, for Adam to fulfill the command that God had given him to keep and care for his creation and to preserve life. So that is where um, the idea of a helper comes from. Not like Lot's wife. We read in Job chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. It says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with a loathsome sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And, took a piece of, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all that, that this, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So I'm not thinking that Job's wife was much of a help in his time of despair, in his lowest point. We all are, or most, may be familiar with the idea of Job. By this time in this story, he lost his family. He lost his wealth. He lost everything, sores from head to toe. And his wife wasn't very helpful. She wasn't being that help in his time of desperation. And des- so don't be like Lot's wife. If, you're, if, you, if, if you subscribe to this and are being a help to your husband in whichever way God has directed him to lead this family, then it is more of a support and encouragement. That's what we really need in, in that endeavor. We, because we have doubts, we're not perfect, um, and, and we may struggle through that process. But to have someone in your side and in your corner that is encouraging and prayerfully uh, helping to encourage you through these times, there, there's no greater value, I can, I can tell you. Uh, carrying on, uh, Genesis chapter 2. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And moving on into verse 20, a man, the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Uh, Verse 22, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and and brought brought her to the man. 23, Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Adam named her. Didn't really name her. He doesn't name her Eve until a little bit later in, in the book of Genesis. But he gave her a classification because she was taken out of man. And then verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the uniqueness of this relationship. It's no longer two. It is one. 
equally divided with different responsibilities, obviously, but it, even in that separation of responsibilities, there is a oneness of flesh. We see a pattern here. And this is my point. This, this, is, this is the origin of the headship that exists in this relationship that was established and recognized before the fall. God brought the animals to Adam as he did the woman. He brought Eve to Adam. Adam named all of the creatures as he did the woman. Naming is an act of discerning something about a creature so as to appropriately identify it. And it also is an act of leadership or authority over that which is named. Then we come to the fall. I think many of us are familiar with this, this portion of Scripture it's spoken of, and it is obviously the foundation of, of why we love Christ is because he has redeemed us from this fall. As a fall, we are all imperfect creatures, and we look to Christ to bring us into that place of redemption only through his blood and only through our identity with him. Uh, Satan uh, deceives Eve. Eve partakes of the forbidden fruit. She gives it to Adam and he eats, being fully aware of God's command not to eat. Like I remind you, he was the only one that was given this command. But it was his responsibility to make sure that Eve was aware of, of everything. It was his responsibility to care for her and to give her right instruction and to, to keep her safe and to preserve her life. And I mean, in this pristine environment, there was no danger. So there was no need to protect, but there was a need to provide and to provide guidance and leadership and to uh, truly take dominion of this environment that was, he was in. Adam willingly and knowingly disobeys God's command. He was not deceived as Eve was. This is why the sin of Adam was brought upon all of mankind. He is the one that we consistently state and that we are sinners because of Adam's sin. Even though Eve partook of the fruit, the, the, the responsibility still falls on Adam's shoulders just as it does with men today in this responsibility of leadership. We bear that responsibility. We will be looking at that in the next time we're together when we look at the men's role. And it's only it's only one verse here, but an entire sermon could be preached on that with, without a doubt. Um, then God confronted all of them with their transgression and brought the curse. Now we're going to take a look at Genesis chapter three. We're going to take a, a a look at the curse. First, God deals with Satan. God declares a sentence of death and ultimate destruction upon the deceiver, the father of lies. Along with that, God declares a promise of the coming Messiah, one who will bring hope and redemption to those who were and are the deceived, which includes us. I, even though this, this particular portion of the curse is not really all that relevant, this is such an important part of Scripture I would be remiss if I did not at least bring it to the forefront. It says in Genesis 3.15, God speaking to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the gospel. Genesis 3.15 has been called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. Martin Luther said of this verse, this text embraces the, and, and comprehends within itself everything noble and glorious that is to be found anywhere in Scripture. Charles Spurgeon said, 
This is the first gospel sermon that was ever delivered upon the surface of this earth. It was a memorable discourse indeed with Jehovah himself for the preacher and the whole human race and the prince of darkness for the audience. Back to Genesis 16, he says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. There's a new twist to this part of the, of the story, and so included in this curse, and as it well, let me back up. First Timothy chapter 2 says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Mercy is mixed with this wrath, and mercy is mixed with wrath in this sentence. The woman shall have sorrow, but it shall be in bringing forth children, and the sorrow shall be forgotten for joy that a, chi that a child is born. You can look further into that in John 16, verse 21. John mentions that. She shall, be, she shall be subject, but it shall be to her own husband that loves her, not to a stranger or to an enemy. The sentence was not a curse to bring her to ruin, but a chastisement to bring her to repentance. It was good that the enmity was not put between the man and the woman, as there was between the serpent and the woman. The principle of Adam's headship as a husband was established before the fall, as we see in the, the scripture that we just looked at. Now the curse on Eve makes it much harder for her to submit and flow with God's institution of male headship in the home. As a result of the fall, man no longer rules easily. He must fight from his leadership. Sin has corrupted both the willing submission of the wife and the loving headship of the husband. The woman's desire to control her husband to usurp his divine authority appointed headship and, and he must master her if he can. So the rule of love founded in paradise is replaced by the struggle of tyranny and domination. That's cited by Susan T. Foe. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. This idea is to contrast the woman's desire and the husband's rule over her. This speaks of an inherent challenge in embracing the husband's role as leader in the home and the family. And that is true. There is tension in this. Um, there are certain groups within um, our society that are at war with this idea. And, and even... even Though we are redeemed Christians, this is part of this. Even we still struggle with this. Women do not necessarily, as dedicated as they might be to following this principle, there still may be struggle. There may be times of doubt. There may be times of struggle. They're not really following. Is your heart 100% willing and 100% cooperative behind this idea? And the men, you know, the men sometimes take advantage and allow pride and, and, and misrepresent God's intent in their leadership role. And that's a sad thing. And it should never be found amongst us. But it's still something that we struggle with. The same word for desire is used in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, of the desire of sin to master over Cain. Because of the curse, Eve would have to fight a desire to master her husband. So the desire is not a sensual desire. It's a desire to overcome his leadership. 
There are, it is used in different ways in Scripture. In this case, with Eve, it is used as a, as a means of desire to overcome. And that man's role in that as a result of the curse would be that he would have to struggle in this relationship and that he would struggle with different things that come along with that. The entrance of sin made that duty a submission of punishment, which otherwise would have not been. If man had not sinned, he would always have ruled with wisdom and love. And if the woman had not sinned, she would always have obeyed with humility and meekness. And then the dominion would have been have been no grievance, but our own sin and folly make that burden heavy. If Eve had not eaten the fruit herself, the forbidden fruit herself, and tempted her husband to eat it, she would never have complained about her subjection. In Genesis 3.17, And God said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall, you, shall, uh, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. Remember, he was the only one given that command. And this is God's uh, retribution against him for that. Because he'd given him that command that you shall not eat. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now back to our, back to our original text in verse 1. We carry on uh, that uh, to your own husbands, even if some do not obey the word. Peter states that wives are, are called to submit to their own husbands and not to all men in general. Male headship is God's commandment principle for the home, marriage, and the church, not for society in general. The position of woman in the ancient world was not an easy one. Roman, Greek, and Jewish cultures in Roman, Greek, and Jewish cultures, women were subject to the authority of their husbands. If a husband was converted to Christ, it automatically followed that he brought his wife into the church as well. But the other way around posed a very different situation. For a wife to become a Christian while an unsympathetic husband remained a pagan, threatened the stability of the marriage relationship, as understood in the ancient world, permeated as it was with the pagan religious practices in which these Christians could not engage. Pardon me. Many of the wives Peter is speaking to may have had believing husbands. We're talking about the, the exiles, the people that Peter is speaking to in, in First Peter. Many of the wives in Peter, uh, wives Peter is speaking to may have had believing husbands that were endeavoring to fill, fulfill God's command to be faithful, thoughtful, and caring husbands. Undoubtedly, some of the husbands who were believers, who were believers, but were active in active disobedience to fulfill their Christian responsibilities as believing husbands. Others may still have been fully immersed in the pagan practices of their societies. The conduct of their wives remains the same in any case. So we look back to that, that uh, aspect of submitting to your, to your masters or to your employers, even if some of them mistreat you. So there was no condition attached. The benefit... The benefit of, I'm sorry, uh, and they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and your pure conduct. The benefit of, of submission is shown in the way that affects husbands for God. A wife's submission is a powerful expression of her trust in God. The kind of faith and obedience, this kind of faith and obedience can accomplish great things in a marriage, even without a word. Peter encourages these women to persevere in seeking to win their husbands to Christ. Wives are not 
to try to achieve this end goal by preaching at them or by nagging. This is not the kind of persuasion that will bring about this change. Instead, it will be the testimony of her godly conduct that will open the way for the Holy Spirit to do his work. Trust in him. And we move on to verses 3 and 4 of First Peter chapter 3. Do not let your adorning be external, speaking to the wise. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. In God's sight, this is very precious. Peter here was not condemning all outward adornment. His condemnation is aimed at the incessant preoccupation with the outward appearance to the disregard of the development of inward character. The Christian woman is encouraged uh, to concentrate primarily on her inward development of chaste and reverent, of a chaste and reverent Christ-like character. First Timothy, uh, Paul reflected this in First Timothy chapter two, verses nine and ten, where he says, "Likewise, to those women, or likewise also, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, in gold or pearls or costly attire." but with what is proper for a woman who professes godliness with good works. Peter, in, uh, in chapter 1, if we look back in, in 1 Peter, uh, verses 23, Peter also mentioned this. That, for you have been born again, not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. This is the scripture. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, beauty doesn't last forever. We know that. Um, I used to be young once. Many of you, I mean, things change, right? That's just accepted. Beauty, we, we can struggle, we can do what we can. The beauty industry uh, in this world generates billions of dollars advertising for products and things that, that and, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's what the scripture is saying. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's the overemphasis on the outward beauty that Peter's trying to redirect these women away from and just say, that, yeah, yeah, do what you want. I mean, look good. Uh, of course we want women to look nice and to be presentable. I mean, men are visual. I mean, we appreciate when women do that and take care of themselves and present, present themselves in the right way. But look on the inside. I mean, work on that first. Build the character, a godly character, and a right, a right heart inside before looking to the outside, because it is what will last the inside of us. Um, looking to verse uh, verses five and six in our text, Peter goes on and says, "For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves." by submitting to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Peter here looks back to the holy women of God as an example for others to follow. He points to Sarah as one example of this timeless adornment of godly character and inner beauty. He says that Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, ladies, I can hear your eyes rolling. And men, I see you elbowing your wives. 
We spoke about this briefly in our Bible study this morning, this term Lord. And there are several uses for this term. It could be used in the covenantal nature for the name of God, Yahweh, Elohim, the God, Father, the God, Father. It also can be used with a capital L in reference to Christ, our Messiah, our Lord. But this Lord that they're talking about here is with a small l, okay? Don't get the wrong idea. Uh, this is not a capital L alone. This is a term of respect that was common at that time, similar to the to sir, like like as a sign of respect, and that's why I think Peter looks back because this is a perfect example of that. Sarah respected Abraham. She respected him in that way to address him in that way. But we'll find out in just a second here that there were times when she didn't always obey him, even though there was respect. And that that goes without saying in this relationship. Yes, the men, we hold this position of leadership. And we looked at this the last time we were in um, chapter 2. There's a point in time when you make a departure in this obedience if, if you're in a marriage and maybe your husband is not a believer and he's requesting or directing you to violate a law of God or to violate what you know not to be true according to his word or to do something illegal or, or that, that isn't in keeping with godly character or with his word, you have every right to refuse that. that, that isn't, it isn't a carte blanche agreement to follow every directive or every instruction that's given by a husband because we are not perfect so we're going to make mistakes but for the most part i mean you know with considerate thought those things can be talked out before you know and and we can all look at that in a rational and thoughtful way compared to what god's word says but peter's not saying that women nowadays should address their husbands as sir the point about this level of respect for the position of leadership or headship in the marriage relationship that the man has been appointed to. Scripture nowhere says that a man has to earn this type of respect and recognition, nor am I saying that the women are obligated to follow every direction and decision made by the man in his role. Scripture does not tell us that we must obey God first and foremost. Even Sarah, like I mentioned, refused uh, Abraham's direction. And we see that in Genesis chapter 21, verses 8 through 12. It says, And the child Isaac grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, uh, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing, so he said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. And the thing that was very dis- displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. So that was, it didn't make Abraham very happy, but Sarah went ahead and told him what she thought anyway. He didn't fear, because she knew she was rightly guided by God in this decision. And in verse 12 it says, But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So God commended Sarah for her, for her refusal to follow that direction. In this instance, it was right and proper for Sarah to refuse to go along with Abraham's decision. Her heart was directed towards God first, and she was following the voice of God rather than that of Abraham. This is right and proper example for women today. And you are her children, as it says in the scripture, if you do good and do not fear anything that was frightening. So there, there was a potential for fear. But Abraham, or, uh, Sarah moved ahead without that fear. 
If you're tr truly committed to following the Lord's will in all of your life and willing to lay aside all of your fears and do what is right in his eyes alone, then you truly are not only the children of Sarah, but more, but you are more importantly daughters and children of the living God. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, Matthew wrote about how we deal with this, with anxiety and fear and the futility that it brings into our lives. We need not fear, but trust completely in the Lord to provide. So I'll close with this. Matthew 6, verses 33 and 34. Matthew says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. But we don't have to be anxious about the things when, when those times are difficult, when we face a difficult opportunity to follow what God says, we don't need to worry. We just need to trust in God. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and of man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Isn't trusting God really the bottom line here? How much do we trust God, even in the tough times? If you confess Christ as your Savior, but still struggle with trusting him with the hard parts, then pray and ask for more faith to trust God in a deeper way. Maybe you're here today and you have not confessed Christ at all and are fearful of that first step of faith. Let me encourage you and invite you to come to him today and trust the Lord. Live for him. Repent and trust in the Lord for the redemption and the covering of your sins.